0: Well, good morning. I would ask you to take your Bible and find Psalm 100 with me. Psalm 100. Usually somewhere towards the middle of your Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms. Find the big number 100. Now, I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving on Thursday. A couple of you did. All right. For most Americans, Thanksgiving is all about more, right? Like, More food than you could possibly eat, right? More family than perhaps you want to see. More and more Black Friday sales invading the sacred space of giving thanks, right? But for those of us who are Christians, really, we of all people should have the most robust thanksgivings. Thanksgiving for us should be full of life, full of celebration. Why? Because we have something that not everyone in the world has. And that's true joy. We have joy. Now, I know that sometimes, and actually usually, we associate joy with Christmas, right? Even like, it's like a candy cane. Joy is usually a Christmas thing. But this morning, what I want us to see is that joy is tied to thanksgiving. And I want to see that from, I think, the most famous thanksgiving passage in the Bible, which is Psalm 100. So if you'll find that there, Psalm 100, and I want to read that together So follow along as I read. Parker already read it for us. I appreciate that. And let's read it one more time. Psalm 100. And the title here says, A Psalm For Giving Thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations." Now, I want you to look at the text, and I want you to see right off the bat how Thanksgiving is tied to joy. I mean, the title itself says, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. That's in the original manuscripts, okay? It says, this is a psalm for giving thanks. And then the very first phrase says what? Make a joyful noise. So Thanksgiving, joy, tied together. This, uh, this phrase here, make a joyful noise, is a fascinating word. As I got a chance to study this. It's a triumphant shout. It's actually the kind of shout that would be offered after the, the king, the general, was victorious in battle. So we just sang a song, the last song that we sang. I don't know if they, the author even realized how theologically accurate that was. When we talk about endless hallelujahs, it says, the victory is yours, right? We just sang that. Jesus, the victory is yours. That's what we're talking about when it says make a joyful noise. It's a battle cry after a victory. In fact, it's the same word that was used when the children of Israel shouted and Jericho's walls came down. Same word. Later in Zechariah, Israel's commanded to shout because her king is going to be coming riding on a donkey. That's the same word, make a joyful noise, shout. This is a celebrative, boisterous, Noise, this is loud joy. And then verse two, we have served the Lord with gladness. Now that word can be mirth, pleasure, delight, but most of the times in the Old Testament, that word gladness is translated as joy. Even come into his presence with singing carries the idea of a joyful cry. By the way, a little side note here. These couple verses are the um, consolation for any tone deaf person anywhere, Right? It doesn't say you have to know how to sing. Does it doesn't say you have to find the melody just right. Sometimes people are trying to find the melody. They hit a harmony. But it says, make a joyful noise. That's what it says. And the idea is joyful, and it's noise, and it's loud. So let it be loud when you come in here and sing. Let it be loud. Let it be joyful. Let it be victorious, because your king has won the battle. It's done. He came, he saw, he conquered sin. And he did all this so you can rest in his achievements. Now, is that not a a reason to celebrate, right, and be loud? I know Roger's loud. Good job, Roger. So our Thanksgiving is to be joyful, right? It's to be loud. It's to be joyful. In fact, I want you to see this morning first that joyful Thanksgiving isn't optional. It's not optional. Joyful Thanksgiving isn't optional. Now, Thanksgiving as a holiday is optional. Because most of the world actually doesn't celebrate it. I don't know if you ever thought about that. It's more of an American thing, Canadian as well, I guess. And a couple of random places in the world I found out. But really, most people don't celebrate the holiday of Thanksgiving. But here, when we're talking about Thanksgiving, we're not talking about the holiday, we're talking about giving thanks and praise to God. This is not an option according to Psalm 100. Why do I say that? Well, we have here seven imperative verbs. So they're in the tense. That means it's a command. When when, when a word, a verb is imperative, it means you're commanded to do this. So in this text, make, serve, come, know, enter, give, bless. All seven of these are imperatives. They're commands, not a suggestion, but something God is commanding us to do. He's saying, make a joyful noise. Come into his presence with singing. This is a command, Maybe that's why so many of us were forced to go around the table at the Thanksgiving meal and tell what you're thankful for, right? We always did that in my house growing up. We do that as a tradition because actually the discipline of giving thanks even when you don't feel like it is not a bad thing. In fact, we do well to do it more often than just Thanksgiving, to continually give thanks even when we don't feel like giving thanks. The context here in Psalm 100 is corporate worship, The people are coming together, they're coming into the temple. But of course, this encompasses all of life, not just Sunday mornings, because it says right in the text, all the earth, not just those that were gathered in the sanctuary, but all the earth is commanded to make a joyful noise. In in verse two, we're commanded to sing, commanded to sing. So some of you guys are like, singing is not my thing, it's not what I do. Well, according to Psalm 100, it is. What you do, it's commanded that you do it. Can you imagine if we forced you to sing here at Bethel? And Parker gets up, somehow doesn't have a smile on his face, and he says, the Bible says make a joyful noise. You will make a joyful noise. Like we just demanded it. We, we required you to sing. Like the Puritans of colonial New England, right? They enforced worship. I don't know if you know about this, but there were these men called tithing men, and, and they were like church police. Some of you, it's kind of like our security today, but to a whole nother level, okay? They would make sure you showed up at church. They would make sure you gave at church. They would make sure you stayed awake at church. I read this really amusing uh, journal entry from 1646. I thought I should share it with you for your amusement as well. It's it's, it's a guy who's writing in his journal about what happened that Sunday morning, okay? He writes this, Alan Bridges was chosen to wake the sleepers in worship. And being much proud of his place, he had a foxtail fixed to the end of a long staff with which he may brush the faces of them that nap during the sermon. Our guys are preparing that right now. Likewise, a sharp thorn whereby he may prick such as sleep most sound. On the last Lord's Day, as he strutted about the meeting house, he did spy Mr. Tomlin sleeping with much comfort. His head kept steady by being in the corner and his hand grasping the rail. And so spying, Alan did quickly thrust his staff behind Dame Ballard and give him a grievous prick upon the hand. Whereupon, Mr. Tomlins did spring up much above the floor and with terrible force strike his hand against the wall. And also to the great wonder of all, profanely exclaim in a loud voice, "'Curse ye, woodchuck!' He he was dreaming, so it seemed that a woodchuck had seized and bit his hand. But on coming to know where he was and the great scandal he had committed, he seemed much abashed but did not speak." And I think he will not soon again go to sleep and worship. <laughs> the point of Psalm 100, though, is not that we should sing because we have to or that we should pay attention in worship lest we face retribution. Perhaps the Puritans were able to force you to exhibit the outward appearances of worship, but you can't force worship in the heart and you can't force joy and you can't force a heart of thanksgiving In fact, it seems to me that when I look at the mechanics of Psalm 100, it works like this. Thanksgiving is the joy, I'm sorry, Thanksgiving is the noise that joy makes. So if you think about joy in your heart, it makes a noise. That noise that joy makes is Thanksgiving. It's giving thanks to God. It comes from the joy that's already in you and the noise that it makes, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We cannot help but give God praise when our hearts have joy. So when we think about what Jesus has done for us, when we read his word and our hearts are stoked with joy, what happens? We give thanks, we worship, we praise him. It might look different ways depending on what we're going through, but it always results in some kind of thanksgiving. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we find joy? If joy turns to thanksgiving, it's joyful thanksgiving, how do we find joy? Because you know what? There are times when you don't feel like giving thanks, and you don't feel joy in your heart. No one is always, 100% of the time, full of joy. I know one guy that whenever you ask him, how you doing? His response is always the same. Living the dream. Now I know that's not true all the time, Right? There's no way that anyone is always living the dream. But every time you ask him, he's going to say, living the dream. It occurred to me as I study here that these imperatives, all of these imperatives, make, serve, come, enter, give, bless, they could actually become tiring, maybe even overwhelming to someone who's caught in depression or is just going through a really difficult time. It's like, oh, God, you want me to do all those things? I can barely breathe today. I can barely put one foot in front of the other And I would just say that joy is a peculiar thing. Joy can be had in the midst of the most excruciating circumstances in life, and some of you could testify to that. Even though you've gone through real difficulties, God had in your heart this true joy. November will always be for me a month not only for Thanksgiving, but the month that my little brother passed away. And I I think about all the events that happened that November, November 15th, 2013, and one of the most powerful, memorable moments in my entire life was after they had uh, found my brother. He, he drowned in Lake Wallenpaupack. After they had found him and we as a family collected into the ambulance and we sang songs together, we sang, blessed be your name. We sang Amazing Grace. I don't remember what other songs we sang that day, but those two stick out to me. That moment will always be etched in my mind. Why? Because even though the worst had happened, we still basically said, God is still good. We could still worship him. And I've often thought, what did the young adults who were within earshot, who were there when my brother died, what did they think when they heard singing coming from the ambulance? Did they think we were crazy? That's the thing about joy, joy is incredibly resilient. It's tenacious. It can weather the hardest storms. It's in your heart deep down. And the week after my brother's memorial service, my family gathered for Thanksgiving. Hard to muster up a Thanksgiving spirit when there's an empty chair around the table. But I, again, I distinctly remember us just saying, you know what, we should still have Thanksgiving because God is still worthy of our thanks, He's still good. And it was a very memorable Thanksgiving. God hadn't changed. And that's what we we, we came together and and praised. He was still good. So we can have joy irregardless of our situation. Whatever happens, you can still in your heart have joy that makes its way and and becomes Thanksgiving. Here's how joy is a beautiful two-edged sword, right? Since joy cannot be forced, it also cannot be forced out of you. No person, no circumstance can steal joy from you. Joyful thanksgiving comes from knowing God and our identity. Here's where it comes from, and we see it in the text, all right? How do you get this joy that overflows into thanksgiving? Well, you look at the character of God. You consider not only who he is, but who you are in light of who he is. So I want you to look at verse 3 and and verse 5 again. So Psalm 100, verse 3 says, "'Know that the Lord, he is God.'" It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Verse five, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Verse three, verse five, look at those. They are true about God no matter what. No matter what happens tomorrow those verses are true. Those things about God are true. In fact, the real emphasis of verse five here is that God's character is bedrock. It is sure. And here is where we can mine that joy and that thanksgiving that we're commanded to have. In this sure character of God. And that character of God shapes our identity. Well, I wanna start with the character of God. Verse three tells us that God's desire is for us to know him. He wants us to. To come and know him, right? Verse three says, know that the Lord, he is God. And this word know, it has an extensive range of meaning in scripture. In the Old Testament, it can mean everything from like you recognize somebody. Oh, I know who that is. To you are learning about them. You're discovering things about them. It can even mean all all the way as deep as as a sexual intimate love, like Adam knew Eve. It's even used for the way that God knows us that level of knowledge. So it could mean all kinds of things. But we know that it's more than just head knowledge when you know someone or something. It's just like faith in Scripture. It's more than mental assent. It involves your body. It involves your whole being. So in our walk with God, there's a continuum that we're on. It's this continuum where we grow in our knowledge of God. And the more we get to know God, the more we love him. And the more joy, the deep-seated joy that is in our heart. Let me illustrate it this way. If this stage is the continuum, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you may have just knowing the facts about who God is, just that there is a God, learning that he is good, that he loves the world, that he gave his son to die on the cross for our sins. And then somewhere in there, there is a knowledge that begins when we submit to, to Jesus Christ and we say, Jesus, you're my Lord I'm going to follow you. I I know you died on the cross for my sins in my place, and I accept that free gift of salvation. And so that knowledge really takes on a personal level. And then we start to walk with God, right? We start to learn more about God, and we're on this continuum. And through the years, as we go through valleys and and mountains, we experience God, and the intimacy grows and grows all the way to the, the other end of the spectrum, which is we're in heaven, 1 Corinthians 13 says, and we will know him even as we're known, that's, that's a knowledge, can you imagine that? We're gonna know God as he knows us? Perfect, per- perfect knowledge. So we're all on this continuum somewhere, right? We're on the journey of, of trying to learn, who is this God? What does this mean for my life? If you're a Christian, you're on this continuum somewhere. Now, if you're struggling with joy this morning, for whatever reason, the remedy is not found out there in the world. There is nowhere you will find that joy. No Cyber Monday sale is gonna bring the joy that you need. Black Friday didn't, did it? <laughs> it's, it's not to be found out there. It's not to be found in some new, exciting relationship. Joy's not even found, this kind of joy, in your family. This is a deep, settled joy that comes from knowing God and exploring intimacy with him as you walk through life, as you walk through the years. Perhaps someone in here is not even on the continuum of knowing God. You're here this morning, but you'd say, I don't even know I don't even know that I know God personally. Like I, I, I come to church, I believe in Jesus, but like to know God personally, I don't, I don't, I don't think I do. I, I don't, I'm not even on that, that, that continuum stage. Well, I, I will say a few more things about this, but I want you, if you would, if God would so lead you to, to come to talk to one of our prayer team members after the service. Come ask and say, hey, how, how do I get to know God personally? Would you pray for me? We would love to pray with you. Come up and talk to us about that. And one might ask this morning, how do I grow in my knowledge of God? How do I I travel down the continuum? How do I get to know God in a deeper, more intimate way? And I would say this, it comes through spending time in his presence. Look at the text. I mean, this is what we have right here in Psalm 100. Verse 2, come into his presence, it says. Verse 4, enter his gates and his courts. Something to remember when this was penned, the primary way... To practice the presence of God was to come into the temple, right? And to come into the sanctuary, the place where the intimacy with God was experienced. And there, sacrifices were made which pointed to the, the one sacrifice to come, right? Jesus Christ. And that's how you would commune with God. And you would, you would celebrate the sacrifice that one day would cover your sins. But today, we rejoice that, that, that Jesus Christ can be experienced anywhere, and the nearness of God is something that is very intimate. Why? Well, Hebrews 10 tells us this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So because the blood of Christ has been shed, because Jesus has paid the price and, and all of our guilt and our, and our sin was upon him, a new and living way was opened. The, the curtain was torn and we have this direct, intimate access to the Father. So this is something that, that the psalmist would not even have fully been able to realize or grasp, but this is our reality. The idea that we get to spend time in the presence of God intimately calling him Abba, Father. So for those of us who are forgiven here this morning and who have a new and living way open for us, my question to you is why are we not entering? What is preventing us from entering and spending time in God's presence when that is available to us made freely through the blood of Jesus Christ? Why are we not going in to this new and living way of communion with God? You know, think about it. It's not really rocket science here, as far as growing in your knowledge of God. I mean, I know my wife so much better after 18 years than I did the first night I met her. Now I learned real quick that she likes strong black coffee, and I knew immediately I had to up my coffee game, like right away. <laughs> it took me a while to get there, but I learned. I've learned all over the years all kinds of things about my wife. I, I know that she likes action-packed movies way better than chick flicks. Right. I know she wants to go to Greece one day. That's a dream of ours, to go to Greece. I've learned that she becomes like a little child during the Christmas season, enjoying all of the Christmas just stuff, you know? It, it like evokes that, that imaginative part of her, and I love that. I love that about her. But because I have spent time with her, I know her much more than I did when we first met. That's how it is with God. You, you walk with him. You, you read his word, and you learn, that oh, this is who God is, you see his word in your life and you experience it and you learn. This is who God is. God reveals himself just like he does in Psalm 100. Look, look at the text. God is revealing a number of things about himself. I want you to see these right here. And I don't have these on the screen and I'm gonna go through these pretty quickly, but you can jot these down if you want. Who is God in Psalm 100? Who is he telling us that he is? Well, verse three, he says he's the one and only God. He is the one and only And this is written in such a way that that basically what the psalmist is saying, know that Yahweh, he is God, not any of the other gods of any of the other nations. Yahweh is the only God. That's what he's saying, the one and only. And notice that all the earth is told to make a joyful noise. So this is a reference to Jews and Gentiles, those who believe in the one true God, Yahweh, and those who don't. Every person in all of creation yea, even the animals and the trees and everything is commanded to give praise to God. That is due him. God deserves all the praise from every person everywhere. Why? Because he's God, the only God. The only God. We know from the rest of scripture that it is a problem that God is not worshiped everywhere by all people. This is a problem. Romans 1 tells us that. There's a statement that John Piper has coined, and it's it's helpful to remember here, and it's this. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Why do we go on go trips, short-term missions trips? Why do missionaries spend their lives in other parts around the world? Why do we share the gospel with our neighbors? Missions exist because worship doesn't. Every creature should be worshiping God right now. Every person should be in this and all the other evangelical churches in, in, in here worshiping God, but they're not. And because they're not, we must engage in missions because God, God deserves this. Like we owe him that, not just from us, but from every creature, the entire world. So he is the one and only. He's also the creator. You saw that, right? In, in Psalm 100, he made us. Not we, ourselves, We are his. He put breath in our lungs. And with every breath that we take, it's a testament to who he is, that he is the creator, that he is a God who designs the body in such an amazing way, doesn't he? To breathe 20,000 breaths a day on average and not give him praise is at best ignorance and at worst arrogance. Arrogance to just go throughout our life and not even think about the fact that he is our creator. He's our shepherd, the text says, our shepherd. We are his sheep. And so as our shepherd, what does he do? Well, Psalm 23 tells us about this. John 10 tells us about this all throughout scripture. He provides for us both physically but also spiritually. He nourishes us. He protects us from Satan, from sin, from false teaching. He guides us with wisdom where to go and how to live and what decisions to make. He disciplines us when we go astray. And as lost sheep, He brings us back. So He's the one and only. He's creator, He's shepherd, He's covenant keeper. He's covenant keeper. The, 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 the title Lord, which is Yahweh, is used four times to make a point here. He's Lord. That's the name that, that Israel had. It's the covenant name between Israel and God, the personal name of God. And then you have this word in chapter, uh, in chapter 100, verse 5 here, steadfast love. That's a very famous word in the Old Testament. It's the word chesed. And chesed is it, it's really a cornerstone word because what it means is covenant love, steadfast Love, it's one of the most precious words in the entire Old Testament. We see it all throughout the Psalms. We see it through the whole Bible, right? This idea of steadfast love, covenant love. I think that's why the ESV editors designated this theme of the Psalm as his steadfast love endures forever. I find peculiar because we already have a title. Not all Psalms have a title. The Psalm's title is a Psalm for giving thanks. But then the ESV editors decided it's his steadfast love endures forever. Why? Why? Because God's steadfast love in that word, it kind of dominates. It is, it is this cornerstone of the whole history of God and his people and what he does. It's absolutely, it's, it's a game changer. The fact that God loves us no matter what. If it wasn't for his covenant, covenant he would have evaporated us. A long time ago, but no, he is with us, bound to us. He's purposed to do a work in us no matter what, and he won't leave us. That's his covenant love. That's Romans 8, right? So this is this, is this covenant-keeping God that we're talking about. Aren't you glad that God is a God of faithfulness? Right. Great is his faithfulness. And so the psalmist is, is celebrating that, right? One more, he says God is good. He is good in verse 5. And when God created the earth and he created human beings, what did he say? He said they were good. Same word here, right? God is good. God actually gets to declare things good. God knows what is good and what is evil because he himself is good. He's the essence of goodness. The world calls good things bad and bad things good. And it can confuse us, can't it? Sometimes in life we're so discombobulated because it's like, I don't even know what's good anymore. God is good. And God gets to tell us what is good. So when he says something is good in his word, it is good. When he says something is harmful or evil, it is harmful, it is evil. And here we have that God himself is good. So what do we do when we're beat up by the world and we're all discombobulated and we, we don't know what, which way is up and what's good and what's evil? We do what Psalm 34 says, "O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So what do you do when you're not feeling very thankful? You can't seem to find the joy in your heart. You know you're supposed to have joy, but you feel dry. You come in here, you don't even feel like you can worship. What do you do? You go to the character of God, and time and time again you draw from that well. Who is God? God is good. Who is God? God is my creator. Who is God? He is my shepherd. Who is God? He is my covenant-keeping God. And it's that, the bedrock of his character, that allows us to draw the thanksgiving that we're commanded to have, the joy that we're commanded to have. God provides it. He doesn't just command it and not give us the ability. No, he himself is that well where we draw from. Because our God is all of these things in Psalm 100, it honestly doesn't matter what's going on in your life. You you may not have enough to scrape together even a Thanksgiving meal because you're just in a situation in life where you have nothing. God hasn't changed. God's character hasn't changed one iota. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. So you can still give thanks. And we may be singing through tears, we may be groaning in our bed but God can take us even in that paralysis and allow us to squeak out a thanksgiving. Some kind of praise because he is still that same God. Joy is produced through knowing God, but there's something else I want you to see. It's subtle here, but I believe it's so important. In the text here, we see that knowing God allows us to know ourselves properly. Who are we? Well, first, we start with who God is. We've seen His character. Well, what does that mean for us? How does that affect the way I view myself? Many of our struggles, I believe this, I really believe this, many of our struggles come from a fundamental misunderstanding of ourselves. We need to know our identity. Look at the text. We are His, His creation, right? His people, His sheep. And that little three-letter word is so powerful, his. Here's something we have no matter what. No one can take this away from you, believer. If you are his, you are God's. No one can take that away. No one can make you not his. The Bible says that God has you in his hand. No one can pluck you out. No No one can remove you from God's presence. Even if others disrespect us, even if others abandon us, it matters little when you consider that the one true God, the Creator God, who made everything you see around you, this God who made everything makes me his child. So the text seems to say, yes, he's made us as in he's fashioned and created us. But it also is probably saying he's made us his people. He's made us a new creation. He's made us physically and he's made us spiritually. It's this God we just talked about who gives us our identity. Who are we? We are his. And until we get this truth, we're going to search furiously to find an identity. Who am I? You know, as a youth pastor, I often would muse that the cliques in high school never really go away, right? Like you see the youth get older in their 20s and their 30s and then older than that. And it still seems that everyone's kind of trying to figure out, who am I? You know, back in high school, it was, am I an athlete? Am I a scholar? Am I in the popular group? Am I attractive? Like, who am I? It's not all that different for us adults. Right? Like, if you go on social media, right, what, what are the... What are the badges that you brandish to identify who you are? Chicago sports fan? Diehard Republican? Into a particular diet? All about your kids? I'm not trying to offend every single person in the room here, though I probably just did. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with loving any of those things. There's nothing wrong with posting about any of that stuff. It's all fine. But some of us are still just trying to figure out who we are. I was talking with somebody this past week about high school reunions, right? What are high school, reunions, unions, high school reunions but a chance to come back together and kind of say, look, I found my groove. <laughs> I am somebody or I, I, I'm not who you thought I was back then or, or, or just like I've, I've done it. And many of our sin struggles, they stem from a misunderstanding of who we are. Who are we? Here's the thing. When you spend time in the presence of God, Psalm 100, you know, come into his presence. When you really spend time in his presence, it affects the way that you view yourself. Think about Isaiah, right? What does he say? Woe to me. Like, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter says, I'm undone. All throughout scriptures, when we encounter God or they encounter Jesus Christ, it shows us who we are. Who are we? Sinful, yes. Yes. Undeserving of mercy, yes, but also incredibly loved. Incredibly loved. Created by God. Fashioned exactly the way that he wants us to be. Exactly with all of our strengths and our weaknesses. All of our fortitudes and our foibles and everything about us. Our personality, that's all God's design. He made us that way. We're gifted with the Holy Spirit. This is all part of our identity. God, you gave me the Holy Spirit to be a son of God. Sons and daughters of God who can actually change the world, not by my power, not by your power, but by his power and by the Spirit. God is our shepherd. I mean, think about the identity of that. God is guiding me. He's protecting me. He's nourishing me. And as I walk through life, he walks right beside me. Nothing can touch me unless God allows it, right? He is the good shepherd. He is the one who watches over me. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's with me, right? He's my shepherd. This is my identity. And the most special description of all, I think, is this word, his. I'm his, Are you his this morning? Would God use that possessive word about you? Well, sure, you're his in the sense that he created you. Every human being is God's possession in that regard. But are you his son? Are you his daughter? Have you found the hope and joy in Jesus Christ? Because that's where the identity really comes from, when we realize I'm a new creation. I'm not defined by my sin. I'm not defined by all the mistakes I made in high school. And yesterday, I'm his. I'm covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm his. This is so precious to be his. I think about the Toy Story saga, which was resurrected this year, right? They just couldn't let it die. So they brought it back. And if you think about Buzz and Woody in that movie, right, they have value and they have meaning precisely because they have somebody's name etched on their foot, right? Right? Andy. And one of the main themes, I think, of the movie is that their value comes from being the possession of the owner. That's what gives them value. Apparently, it's what can even give value to a spork, if you watch the most recent one, okay? (laughs) The point is this. Andy is great, and the toys are his, so their meaning is set. They're not just a little action figure. They're not just a spork they actually derive meaning and value and identity by their owner, by the person who, is, who they are his. And this is what Psalm 100 is saying. Except unlike Andy, who grows up and forgets about Buzz and Woody and they have to like bring another generation of somebody in there, our God never grows out of a relationship with us, never gets tired of us. Look at the end of the text. He is faithful to all generations. He never changes his love or his care for us. His character is set in stone. His faithfulness is perennial. And our identity is solid because we are his. That's what produces in us joyful thanksgiving.